The Delphi case is going to be televised. Alec Baldwin could be charged again. What happens when the Colorado Supreme Court says the cops violated the law? Nothing. Jordan Vandersloot pleads guilty and gets a free pass for the death of Natalie Holloway. You should not kidnap and torture anyone. But if you do, can you at least try to kidnap and torture the right guy? Courtroom decorum, a don't do this guide. The date raping doc is going to trial. And you know you had a bad night when you don't know how you got into the rafters of a grocery store. And then finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Good day, everyone. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Thanks for watching. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't. Like if you do. Leave me a comment below. And always hit that bell so you receive notifications of when we go live or put up new content. And hey, you can listen to us anytime on any of your favorite podcasting apps. Now, we have a long show for you today, and it's a good one. And one of the reasons why it's going to be long is, well, we're going to kind of geek out on a case that came down from the Colorado Supreme Court that basically says, hey, it's okay to issue a um, illegal warrant and we're not going to do anything about it. I think it's worth talking about. So for all those Crime Talk geeks, we're going to geek out on the law today. But we've got a lot of other news for you as well. As a pet owner, you want to give your furry friend the very best. That's why Baked in Colorado's CBD-infused dog treats are the perfect choice. These delicious treats not only taste great, but they also provide a wide range of health benefits for your pet. CBD has been shown to have many positive effects on dogs, including reducing anxiety, alleviating pain and inflammation, and improving overall wellness. Baked in Colorado's treats are infused with premium, full-spectrum CBD oil, meaning your pet will benefit from the whole plant extract. Not only that, but Baked in Colorado's treats are made with all-natural human-grade ingredients so you can feel good about what you're giving your pet. They're also free from wheat, corn, and soy, making them a great option for dogs with food sensitivities. Baked in Colorado CBD-infused dog treats are the perfect way to support your pet's health and well-being. With various flavors, including peanut butter, pumpkin, and bacon, your dog will love them too. So why wait? Head to www.bakedincolorado.com today and order your dog a bag of these delicious and nutritious treats. Your pet will thank you for it. So let's go ahead and open the docket. Open the record for October 18th of 2023 and first on the docket. That's right, Delphi. Cameras will be permitted in the courtroom for the first time in the high-profile Delphi murder trial after an order was issued by the judge on Tuesday. Now, cameras will be allowed inside the courtroom as Richard Allen, the man charged with killing Abigail Williams and Libby German, in the Delphi case in 2017. Now, Mr. Allen's lawyers previously asked the judge to allow cameras in the court for all future proceedings. However, Surprisingly, have you started to notice the trend here? It was the prosecutors who expressed, quote, serious concerns, end quote, to the request, stating that it will be distracting. The prosecutors claimed that allowing cameras would create a circus atmosphere where 15-second video clips could give an inaccurate impression of the justice system. Despite these concerns, the judge ruled to allow cameras in the courtroom, and it's going to start Thursday at Thursday hearing. Now, the news media, defined as newspaper periodicals, press associations, radio stations, television stations, or wire services, will be permitted to broadcast the 
hearing. It's funny how the prosecutors say it could a 15-second clip could could uh, uh, give an inaccurate impression of the court system. Well, I agree. Then let's televise it all so that inaccurate impression is not given. Now, the judge did make the following statement in the order. Quote, the court has determined that allowing recording of the October 19, 2023 hearing is permitted, provided that the means of recording will not distract the participants or impair the dignity of the proceedings. And the hearing itself is a non-confidential proceeding. The court therefore authorizes the recording and broadcasting of the hearing set for October 19, 2023. Thursday's hearing is scheduled for 2 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll bring it to you. Be, be watching. All right, next on the docket, Alec Baldwin could be charged. That's right, prosecutors in New Mexico have announced that they will present a new, renewed case against Alec Baldwin to the grand jury, and the special prosecutors are seeking to recharge him, obviously. Now, Baldwin's attorneys uh, said that uh, he will fight the case in court if he's charged. Well, that's kind of an obvious statement. Of course, he's got to show up and he's going to either fight it or breach a plea bargain, but he's going to show up in court. So anyway, <laughs> as we know, Alec Baldwin was uh, accused of holding the Colt 45 revolver when it fired a live round into the director, Joel Souza's shoulder, and obviously killing Helena Hutchins. Now, Hutchins was uh, rushed to the hospital where she uh, later was uh, pronounced dead. Now, it remains unclear how live ammunition was brought onto the set and actually loaded into the firearm. And Baldwin was interviewed by the Santa Fe County Sheriff's Office following the tragedy and has steadfastly pled his innocence and insists that the gun fired spontaneously. Now, we have done shows where I have brought in an antique firearm of the same type and vintage that was used in this, and I showed you that it would be impossible for that to fire on its own. Somebody's not being truthful. Anyway, I guess I'll have to bring that firearm back in and explain how it works again. Anyway, the first uh, prosecutor to take the case was Andrea Reed and investigated the uh, shooting for a year before she decided to charge Alec Baldwin uh, while also giving uh, numerous interviews to the press. Baldwin his legal team branded the official stance as unfair and argued that he was being made an example by a fame-hungry prosecutor. Well, then in January, Baldwin was eventually charged with involuntary manslaughter, but those charges were dismissed uh, in April of this year after arguments were laid out over the gun's functionality on the set. Then Baldwin's attorneys stated that the gun may have been altered before he uh, actually had handled the firearm, causing it to malfunction and uh, when the trigger was actually in fact pulled. And then by August, a report was made public that determined that the revolver had not been modified and the trigger had to have been pulled for it to fire. Therefore, the special prosecutor announced that they will present renewed argument to a grand jury uh, in the next few months. He's going to be charged and will probably reach some sort of resolution that will result in some sort of deferred prosecution for Alec Baldwin. Everyone's happy. I mean, obviously, nobody's happy that everybody got hurt. But I think all the civil cases have been resolved, or just about all the civil cases have been resolved, at least as it remains, uh, relates to Alec Baldwin. So there may not be a whole lot of interest to seeing Alec Baldwin uh, prosecuted, at least by the victims in this particular case. But the prosecutors are moving forward. And when it happens, we'll bring it to you live. 
Next, what happens when the government violates someone's constitutional rights? Well, apparently nothing. All right, so we're going to geek out on this. So for all the hardcore crime talk aficionados, here we go. And the word of the day is reverse keyword search. All right, so this Google search information um, survives review by applying what we refer to as the good faith exception. That's what we're going to talk about. So let me tell you a little bit of background. So two months after an arson that left five people dead, the Denver Police Department sought a reverse keyword warrant to identify who searched for the address of the home that burned down. Now, the first warrant sought records identifying each user's full name, date of birth, email address, physical address, phone number, and the IP address. Well, Google's policy wouldn't allow them to turn over this information. Google, being more concerned with the Constitution than our government, makes you feel all warm and fuzzy, right? Well, after being educated by Google, the Denver Police Department obtained a second more circumscribed warrant. Google again told the Denver Police Department it was too broad, sending the DPD back to the drawing board. The Denver Police Department then obtained a third warrant requesting that Google produce an anonymized list containing identifying identifiers assigned by Google representing each device along with the associated IP address for any Google accounts that searched the address during the 15 days before the fire while using Google services, i.e. Chrome, Google Chrome, Google Maps, or any other Google service. Well, this time, Google complied with the third warrant and produced a spreadsheet of 61 searches made by eight accounts for that address. The Denver Police Department then obtained a search warrant for the name and other personal information associated with the five Colorado-based IP addresses based on further investigation. Now, two people were ruled out as suspects, and Seymour uh, was one of the uh, remaining three people. Seymour was eventually charged with numerous offenses related to the house burning down. Well, Seymour then litigated a motion to suppress the information gained through this reverse keyword warrant process. In a rather simplistic analysis, the trial court denied the motion. The Supreme Court granted review of the defendant under a Rule 21 petition. Given this novelty, the uh, ubiquity of the technology at issue, the potential for the issue to reoccur, and the privacy interests at stake. So the majority of the court affirms that the trial court's ruling on alternative grounds and finds that the good faith exception allows them to avoid suppressing all the evidence, even though you'll see it violated the Constitution. Don't worry. If the courts aren't going to protect the Constitution, who's going to? Anyway, the majority of the court's analysis breaks down into the following steps. Let me explain. First, the defendant Seymour has standing to claim the government engaged in a search because he has both, one, a reasonable expectation of privacy in the place searched, and two, he has a possessory interest in the property seized. Now, Seymour has both a subjective and objectively reasonable expectation of privacy in his Google search history under Article 2, Section of the Colorado Constitution, not so much under the Fourth Amendment, according to the Colorado Supreme Court. Anyway, the courts use a two-pronged test to determine if the 
claimed privacy interest warrants constitutional protection. First, whether an individual exhibited an actual subjective expectation of privacy, and B, whether objectively the expectation is one that society is prepared to recognize as reasonable. Well, Seymour evinced his uh, subjective expectation of privacy in his Google search history by using a search engine with strict privacy protections, and the defendant Seymour was entitled to assume that his search history would not be broadcast to the world. Well, unless, of course, you're using Google. Keep that in mind. Well, like the location data in US v. Carpenter, an individual's Google search history holds for many Americans the privacy of their life. And uh, digital privacy laws further demonstrate that society finds an objective expectation of privacy in your digital data. But under federal jurisprudence, there may be no Fourth Amendment objective reasonable expectation of privacy in information voluntarily disclosed to third parties. The majority sidestepped this issue by relying on Colorado's more expansive constitutional provisions under Article 2, Section 7, which has long rejected the third-party doctrine. Now, accordingly, the, they concluded that Seymour has both a subjective and objective reasonable expectation of privacy in his Google search history under the Colorado section of the Colorado Constitution. Seymour also has a constitutionally protected possessory interest in his Google search history under the Colorado Constitution and the Fourth Amendment. Now, under both the Fourth Amendment and the Colorado Constitution, a seizure occurs when the government meaningfully interferes with an individual's possessory interest in property, including intangible property. Now, while law enforcement can copy digital data without affecting the owner's access to that data, it is the act of copying that meaningfully interferes with the owner's possessory interest because it infringes on one's right to exclude and control the dissemination and use of that digital data. Even though the government initially saw Seymour's Google search history only in connection with an IP address rather than a user identified by name, a trespass is a trespass even if the intruder doesn't know the digital property owner's name. Second, Seymour's Google search history implicates his right to freedom of expression under the First Amendment and the Colorado Constitution, Article 2, Section 10, the court states. Now, analogizing this situation to the warrant for an individual's book purchase record in the tattered cover, which is a bookstore, the majority finds the act of accessing a web page to receive information, just like purchasing a book, constitutes an expressive activity because the user is seeking to tap into the marketplace of ideas. Thus, courts must exercise scrupulous exactitude in evaluating the validity of a warrant seeking that search history. So far, so good, right? But when the wheels start to wobble. Third, the majority concludes that the warrant at issue adequately particularized the place to be searched and the thing to be seized, and to demonstrated sufficient probable cause. Well, the warrant described with sufficient particularity both the place to be searched and the thing to be seized, right? Even in applying the particularity requirement with scrupulous exactitude and acknowledging that the search touched billions of users 
Private's account information, the court was satisfied that the warrant sufficiently identified the place to be searched with particularity. Throw out that big net. Hope you get what you're looking for close enough for government work. First, the court says the search parameters used by the Denver Police Department, a single address within the 15 days before the alleged arson was reasonable. Second, there was no rummaging because no human, let alone any law enforcement official, saw information falling outside of the warrant narrows the warrant's narrow search parameters. Instead, it was a computer that briefly scanned Google's database. Although the database is large, the narrow search term, the time frame constraints, and the fact that the initial search was anonymized all served to minimize any invasion of the privacy resulting from the search. Now, because the dissent did, you may notice that the majority blurs the scope of the search with the scope of the place to be searched. So here, the warrant made clear that only records containing one of the nine specific keywords were to be seized. And Google turned over no personal information other than IP address corresponding to the accounts responsive to that query. While Google may have turned over records that contained other information, that did not apparently affect the specificity of the warrant's language. The warrant was adequately particularized as to the things to be seized. Fourth, they needed to address whether the absence of individualized probable cause rendered the warrant constitutionally defective. The court chose not to resolve whether a search of Google's massive database requires probable cause individualized to a single Google account holder, because even if they were to conclude that it does, for the reason explained below, because even if they were to conclude that it does, as I'll explain, the evidence here would still be admissible under the exclusionary rules good faith exception. And this is where the wheels fall off the justice bus. Fifth, law enforcement obtained and executed the warrant in good faith. So the evidence shouldn't be suppressed under the exclusionary rule. The parties didn't dispute that the warrant was issued by a detached and neutral magistrate. So the issue is whether the investigators' reliance on the warrant was objectively reasonable. Four circumstances will render an officer's reliance on a warrant to be unreasonable. First, where the issuing magistrate was misled by a known or recklessly made falsehood, where the issuing magistrate wholly abandoned their judicial role, i.e. double, I mean, rubber stamped it. Third, where the warrant is so facially deficient that the officer cannot reasonably determine the particular place to be searched or the thing to be seized, and where the warrant is based on an affidavit so lacking in indicia of probable cause as to render officials' belief in the existence entirely unreasonable. Well, the majority of the court found none of these factors existed. First, this was previously unaddressed legal issue, so how could the police possibly know what to do? Second, factually, there was a minimum nexus between the address searched for in the database and criminal activity. Third, the police used reasonable efforts to obtain important evidence when they ran out of other options. This was their out. They obviously understood the constitutional problems arising from the government's ability to obtain internet search history. But 
They did not want to suppress the evidence necessary to prosecute a person they believed was guilty. So they use a simplistic, practical way around the problem, the good faith exception. This is how they punted on the issue. The court said, our finding of good faith today neither condones nor condemns all such warrants in the future. If dystopian problems emerge, as some fear, the court stands ready to hear argument regarding how we should rein in law enforcement's use of rapidly advancing technology. Today, we proceed incrementally based on the facts before us. If you're like me, you're not the only one to draw this conclusion. Justice Marquez, in her dissent, and we'll talk about more in a minute, puts it much more delicately. The majority ultimately concludes that the good faith exception to the exclusionary rule renders moot any deficiencies in the warrant. In the majority's view, law enforcement had no reason to know that it might have needed to demonstrate a connection between the alleged crime and the defendant's individual Google account, because until today, no court had established that individuals have a constitutionally protected privacy interest in their Google search history. There is certainly temptation here to reward creative police work, particularly when it results in the apprehension of the suspected perpetrators of a senseless arson and murder of five individuals, Judge Marquez noted. But she was joined by Justice Smore in her dissent. And the dissent starts out by agreeing with the majority on two points. First, Justice Samore has a reasonable expectation of privacy in his Google search history and law enforcement meaningfully interfered with the defendant's possessory interest in his Google search history, resulting in a seizure of that information under both the Fourth Amendment and the Colorado Constitution. Second, a person's search history can implicate constitutional freedom of expression, meaning the Fourth Amendment protections must be applied with scrupulous exactitude. But they disagree when the wheels on the justice bus begin to wobble. They refocused the attention on what really happened. This was a search of a Google database and billions of people's information, not just Seymour's, was searched. And if, as the majority acknowledged, Seymour has both privacy and possessory interests in his Google search history, then so does every other Google user. And if every Google user has a privacy and possessory interest in their history, then a government-directed scan of billions of such histories necessarily intrudes upon those collective interests. So such a scan, therefore, constitutes a search within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment, not merely with respect to Seymour's data, but rather with respect to all of the user's data scanned. And this search was conducted without probable cause or with any particularity regarding the place searched. So law enforcement employed a reverse keyword search precisely because it lacked probable cause with respect to an individual Google user associated with an IP address, let alone the defendant. So indeed, law enforcement admitted to having no more than a hunch that the digital phishing expedition through Google's entire collection of individuals' private information might yield results where lawful investigative techniques had in fact failed. So the complete absence of probable cause as to any individual Google account logically forecloses the conclusion that the warrant was sufficiently particularized with respect to the place to be searched.
Remember, Google's entire database of a billion plus users' accounts. So law enforcement officers had no idea where to look for the specific records they were seeking because they had no idea which, if any, user accounts might contain such histories that included the identified keywords. Thus, the rummaging through the private search history of billions of Google users, including the defendants, hoping to find accounts linked to particular search terms in a specific time frame. So to escape this conclusion, the majority of the court relies upon the purportedly narrow search parameters that limit the place to be searched by specifying uh, the date of to be seized. But relying on the information seized somehow defines the place that was searched, a billion user accounts. It completely defies logic and conflates distinct constitutional requirements. Such an approach impermissibly justifies a government search of literally any location where they sought after evidence and they believe that it might be found. Because the warrant here was not supported by probable cause and lacked particularity as to the place to be searched, it does not pass constitutional muster. The warrant's facial def deficiencies render the good faith exception inapplicable to the situation. Law enforcement should have been aware its endeavor was essentially a fishing expedition, as the court found in another case called Gutierrez. It is difficult to understand how a reasonably well-trained officers searching through a billion individual Google users' accounts, all but a handful of which were free from any evidence of wrongdoing, would not at some basic level be aware that their endeavor was essentially a fishing expedition. For these reasons, the defense said that the good faith exception should be inapplicable in this particular case. The privacy the framers cherished comes at a cost and the Fourth Amendment protections must be respected even when doing so will have an impact on the ability of law enforcement to combat crime. Because these constitutional protections cannot be ignored even when law enforcement hits a dead end and when investigating a tragic incident, as it did here, can't be ignored. Anyway, another justice agreed with the dissent that the search here was unconstitutional and the defendant and each of the billion Google users across the globe had privacy and possessory interests in their internet search records. Thus, both the Fourth Amendment and the section of the Colorado Constitution required the Denver Police Department to have individualized probable cause for each user before it could direct Google to search all of their records. Here there was no probable cause for any individual user and certainly no probable cause as to the defendant. The uh, justices also strongly disagreed with the majority's conclusion that examining a billion Google users' search history was not unreasonably intrusive because the government didn't seize all those other billions of search records. And the majority conflates the place to be searched, a billion user-specific internet search queries, with the thing to be seized, the keyword search results. In doing so, the majority of the court creates a special rule for reverse keyword warrants that collapse both parts of the Fourth Amendment's particularity test in a test based solely on the description of the thing to be seized. Now, Justice Marquette, Marquez, she concurred in the judgment because, as the majority found, suppression is not necessary under the good faith exception. She reached the conclusion for reasons similar to the majority. There is no well-established law in Colorado or anywhere else concerning the constitutionality of the reverse keyword searches. 
the DPD had no reason to know that individuals have a constitutionally protected interest in their Google search history, and they might need to demonstrate a connection between the alleged crime and the defendant's Google accounts. Well, under these circumstances, the officers acted reasonably in carrying out this novel type of search. Here, their reliance on the warrants was objectively reasonable, though going forward, that would not be the case. So I don't know, ladies and gentlemen, if that does not scare the hell out of you, I don't know what is. The majority of the court said it's okay to go search, rummage through all of these records, and you don't know what you're looking for, but you'll know it when you find it. Kind of violates the Fourth Amendment. You don't know what you're looking for, but just go rummage around. We know somebody on this block is a bad guy. Let's just go rummage through everybody's houses. We'll know it when we see it. You should be absolutely terrified of this. And the court says, well, we're not going to allow this again, but this time is okay because it was the first time it ever took place. Okay, there you go. Um, and oh, by the way, Google? Okay, listen, ladies and gentlemen, if Google is going to allow all of your searches to be searched by any governmental agency because they had a warrant and they're just going to let their computer do it, be afraid. Okay, and I know Google owns YouTube. Scary, scary, scary. Maybe we'll have to go use one of those other ones for our search uh, results that hopefully uh, are not going to open the door to law enforcement. Because what if you'd Googled that, you know, let's say you're a true crime aficionado and you wanted to search the address to see where it was on Google Maps. You could have potentially been wrapped up in this investigation. Something to think about, ladies and gentlemen. Maybe you're not concerned. I don't know. I think it's offensive. Stand by. Next, Jordan Vandersloot has finally admitted to killing the Alabama teen Natalie Holloway 18 years ago by bludgeoning her to death with a cinder block after she tried to fight back against his sexual advances. Now, Vandersloot, along with the was the Vandersloot was the prime suspect in the then 18-year-old's disappearance and made the shocking admission in court in Alabama uh, where Holloway's parents were present. Quote, you changed the course of our lives and you turned them upside down, her mother stated, and um, only standing a couple of feet from old Mr. Vandersloot. You are a killer, and I want you to remember that every time that jail door slams shut, well, Vandersloot, now 36, detailed how he started kissing Miss Holloway on the beach after a date at a local bar, according to the court records. And, quote, he started to uh, feeling her up uh, again, and she tells him no. She tells him that uh, she doesn't want me to feel her up. This is all according to the court documents. And so he insisted, and he kept trying to continue with his feeling upness. Well, the American teen then kneed him in the crotch, enraging Mr. Vandersloot, and then he knocked her out by kicking her extremely hard in the face. What a gentleman. Then Vandersloot then grabbed a nearby cinder block, according to him, and he smashed her head with it completely. He then disposed of her body in the water, according to Mr. Vandersloot. Now, the Dutch citizen has already been arrested in Aruba twice on suspicion of Holloway's murder, but ultimately released for a lack of evidence. And he is not currently charged in Holloway's death, but made his confession as part of a plea deal for extortion and wire fraud after her family uh, 
was tried to be extorted for $250,000 to reveal the location of her body. He was sentenced Wednesday to 20 years in prison to run concurrently with his 28-year sentence he is serving in Peru for the 2010 slaying of another woman by the name of Stephanie Flores. Concurrent, ladies and gentlemen, which means it runs at the same time as this one. He's basically getting a free pass. Well, the judge handing the case apparently required him to come clean to get any type of a deal. Now, Holloway disappeared while on a high school graduation trip in Aruba, and her disappearance obviously brought worldwide attention. Um, obviously, Miss Holloway was brutally murdered in, in a separate instance years apart. Two young women who refused the sexual advances, the judge noted to Mr. Vander Schloot. So there you go. Um, statute of limitations run in Aruba. I still think he could have been charged, but uh, under different theories uh, in the United States. But hey, I guess it's done. Finally, it's, it's done. And he admitted to what everybody knew all along, that he was the guy. Oops, wrong guy. Three Florida men have been charged with kidnapping after they allegedly forced a man into their car at gunpoint last Friday morning and took him to an Airbnb where they tortured him over an alleged debt owed to somebody else. Uh, brothers Jeffrey and Jonathan Arista and Raymond Gomez put an electric drill, guns, and a taser to the man's head. Anyway, and they even waterboarded him at this uh, uh, Airbnb in the bathroom before concocting a plan to have the victim lure the intended target uh, to them from a strip club where they both worked. Well, the three men have been charged with kidnapping and conspiracy uh, and could face life in prison. The brothers, Jeffrey and Jonathan Arista and Raymond Gomez, put an electric drill, guns, and a taser to the man's head. Well, guess what? Turns out they even waterboarded the guy. What was the problem, though? Yeah, it um, was the wrong guy. So once they figured out it was the wrong guy, they had the wrong guy go meet the right guy. The wrong guy told the right guy that everything that was taking place and the uh, right guy called the police and everybody was in fact arrested. The three men have been charged with kidnapping and conspiracy to kidnap and could face life in prison if convicted. We're not encouraging people to kidnap and torture people, but if by God, if you're going to do it, get the right guy. All right, we were talking about this last night on our live program, courtroom decorum. All right, here's, let me give you an example of what not to do. So a brawl broke out between the families of a killer and his uh, victim. A brawl broke out between the families of a killer and his uh, victim after the mother of the dead teenager called the murderer a monster. So Frank DeLon pled guilty, Frank DeLeon pled guilty during a hearing in a Houston courtroom Tuesday and admitted to fatally shooting his then 16-year-old girlfriend, Diamond Alvarez, uh, 22 times as she was walking the family dog back in January of 2022. Well, he's going to get 45 years in prison for that. And when the mom got up and spoke, um, she, she finished and she left the witness stand and started to head towards Mr. DeLeon. The bailiff restrained her. But Alvarez's uncle charged at the killer, sparking a big fight. Well, needless to say, after uh, order was restored, uh, the mom regretted her words, telling the local media that uh, he's a monster and uh, that will never change. And she also commented, did he look remorseful at all? No, he was laughing at my face like it's a joke. Life is not a joke. My daughter's not a joke. I get that. So then Alvarez's uncle 
was also taken into custody after the fight, though it's exactly unclear if he's been charged. Shows the uncle charging at the bailiffs here, and uh, they tried to stop the fight, and security officers actually pulled a taser at one point on the uncle. Can't exactly tell if it was used. And the bailiff pulled De Leon away from the uncle as the judge ordered off to chambers. At the same time, De Leon's mother started to brawl with Miss Mankato. Can't make this stuff up, ladies and gentlemen. Now, I've been in a couple of, not me personally, but been there when stuff grows breaks out. I once got appointed to a case by a guy that attacked the judge because I had just stepped out to take a phone call and then all hell broke loose and I got appointed to the guy. Now, the guy didn't go after the judge. He went after a, a prosecutor who was totally unreasonable. So when they said, oh my God, he's so scary, I asked, well, who did he go after? And they told me the name of the district attorney. I said, well, he must have some redeeming qualities. So I represented him. Well, needless to say, he never made it all the way to court because he skipped bond and uh, got shot by the Las Vegas police and uh, bled out. So that's, things happen, ladies and gentlemen. Next, a Denver cardiologist pleads not guilty to date rape. The date rape doctor. Please meet Dr. Stephen Matthews. He's pled not guilty in a courtroom here in Denver, and the cardiologist is facing a dozen criminal counts after 13 women claimed that he uh, drugged them during dates, with some saying that they were, in fact, sexually assaulted. Now, last month, a preliminary hearing was held, and uh, the judge determined that uh, Dr. Matthews has to stand trial for 51 felony charges, including about two dozen counts of sexual assault and another 17 counts of drugging the alleged victim, with more women continuing to come out with accusations against him. That trial is scheduled to begin March 4th of next year and is expected to last up to four weeks. All the women said that they met Mr. Matthews through a dating app. Hmm, like Hinge or Tinder. And they would meet him for a date, but after he would make them a drink or they left their drink unattended, they say they began to feel loose. They began to lose memory and essentially black out, sometimes for up to several hours. Almost all of them said at some point they vomited and several told the Denver police they would come to only to find Mr. Matthews engaging in sexual contact with him, them. Matthew's lawyer said in the court that um, all of the named victims uh, should not be uh, cloaked in anonymity and their names need to be revealed. Well, the good doctor, he remains in custody in a $5 million bond. Next, you can't make this stuff up. And you know you had a tough night when you wind up in a grocery store and have no idea how. Anyway, at Brahms Grocery, um, store, they discovered a man sleeping in the ceiling. Philip Hickman climbed into the ceiling and fell asleep sometime between midnight after the store closed and 6 a.m. when employees arrived to work. Now, uh, Brahms is located there in Norman, Oklahoma, and police responded to a report of a possible burglary at about 6.40 a.m. when workers found 15 tiles that had fallen from the ceiling and the wiring to the camera system had been damaged. An officer climbed a ladder and saw Mr. Hickman lying in the crossbeams in the ceiling, pretending to be asleep. Hickman apparently acted unresponsive. It eventually took about 30 minutes for the police officers and the fire department to wake Mr. Hickman from his fake slumber upon uh, coaxing him out of the ceiling. Now, Mr. Hickman was arrested and taken into custody. He told police that he really didn't remember how he ended up in the rafters inside the locked grocery store. Well, Mr. Hickman has a little time to reflect upon that because he's been charged with breaking and entering and malicious injury to 
property. And finally today, our dumb criminal of the day. Knowing that the police were looking for him, tried to evade in a somewhat unusual way. How did he do that, Scott? Well, he scribbled a message on a whiteboard that he left outside the house. And when the officers found it, they were supposed to believe that he wasn't there. That's right. Johnny Yates um, was the wanted guy, and they went to his home. And when they got there, they were greeted by a whiteboard message hanging outside the home that informed them that, quote, Johnny doesn't live here anymore. Well, the deputies apparently weren't fooled by the message, and their suspicions were confirmed by a person who was seen leaving the house who informed them that, oh, no, no, Mr. Yates, he's inside. Well, Yates eventually was found hiding in a modified chest of drawers and was arrested and transported to jail. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, if it were that simple, you should just take your whiteboard with you everywhere. No, officer, I wasn't speeding. <laughs> you have the wrong man. <laughs> I am not sleeping in rafters. You may search billions of Google records. Go ahead, it's okay. Yes, just take the whiteboard everywhere. All right, I know it was a long show. Hopefully you stuck with us through the entire show. You're a true aficionado. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time on Crime Talk.